<coughs> good morning, good morning. It's great to be with you all again after such a long time, five years. I think Eric knows more about my ministry and my life than I do <laughs> after that introduction. So uh, thank you, Eric. And uh, you, you did have a great impact on me in college. Um, and I still have some snippets of our conversations from when I was in college with you. And they still sometimes come up and counseling things, repeating those same things that I heard from you. So thank you for that. And that's so you to have rosters from 2009 <laughs> still on your computer. <laughs> I don't have that gift. Um, I'm just happy that I'm here on time. So. Okay, so uh, let me, if we can pull up the slide here, um, and I'll just share a little bit quickly about our ministry in Poland. It's my precious family. Um, we were just in the yard laying on a blanket, somebody took a picture of us. Just kidding, it's professional. Um, <laughs> uh, it's my beautiful wife, Christine, back here. We have four kids. Uh, Jeremiah is the oldest, eight years old. Jonathan is six. Amelia is three, and Aneta is six months old, so... I've been very blessed. Two of our kids were born in California and two in Poland. Um, So we're really grateful uh, for our family, growing family. The Lord gave us a home in Poland, which we moved into about a year ago. So we're just so grateful for that. Um, But one big question is, why Poland? Why do we go to Poland? Um, I'll be honest with you, when I first was thinking about Poland, I had to check on the map where it was. (laughs) So it's not as if I grew up thinking a lot about ministry in Poland and, oh, that's just where I want to go. But I was in seminary one day eating lunch. um, And which I didn't actually usually do in seminary, because if you've ever been to seminary, it's pretty busy. That sweet time, you just got to read. <laughs> you don't have time to eat lunch with your friends usually. I was eating lunch with my friends, and uh, a Polish brother pulled up a chair next to me, told me about the ministry in Poland and about how Poland is Roman Catholic, uh, and to be Polish is to be Catholic. And if you tell a Polish person to turn from Catholicism, it's kind of like asking an American to burn the flag. It's just so much integ- in- integral with the culture itself. He told me that um, the evangelical church that is in Poland is very small and very unhealthy. Um, and so there's a great need for evangelism, and there's a great need for church planting, church strengthening. Uh, we recently took a map, and maybe sometime if I'm back I can try to show it to you, but we took a map of Poland, and we put a red dot on a map everywhere that we saw a, a, a and we knew there was a city with a true church. Not necessarily a church we would partner with, but we know that if people go there, the gospel is being preached, and we put a dot there on the map. And we drew a circle around every dot of more or less an hour's drive. With, you know, theoretically, people could drive an hour to church, although it wouldn't probably happen, especially in Poland. That's like a, an eternity for somebody to drive to go to church. But theoretically, because what we wanted to do was see what, what, is, what are the needs in Poland, as, as far as we know from the churches. And we saw this map with huge gaps, with big, a big city, one of the most famous cities in Poland. As far as we know, no evangelical church at all. Uh, big swaths of land with lots of villages, where those people, from a human perspective, they'll never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so a great need for, for preaching the gospel. Um, just to give you a kind of a taste of the Catholic culture in Poland, um, at, the, at the schools, they have religion classes in the public schools. And so then the Catholic nuns or Catholic priests will come and lead these religion classes. You can exempt out of it, which is what we did <laughs> for our kids, but that just shows you how close these, uh, the, the Catholicism is related with the culture. There's Mary Radio. You're driving down the road, and there's a, a shrine to Mary. You see people, people stop and do the sign of the cross and pray to Mary, and it's usually Mary is kind of the big part of this, this um, shrine, and then above it, there's a little crucifix with Christ on the cross, and I think that shows you a lot about um, how Catholics often think. And I'm not here to, to just criticize Catholics. That's never our goal. It's just to criticize them. But 
but we love the Catholics, and that's why we uh, have gone to them, because we want them to know the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that you're not saved by your good works. We're saved by Christ alone, and what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross, his death, his life, his resurrection from the dead. Um, so it's also, though, becoming very secular. It's going way EU. In fact, there was just some elections, and so now it's more and more people uh, identifying with the EU, European Union agenda, LGBTQ, and whatever the other letters are now, I don't even know anymore. Uh, a lot of people say, I'm a, I'm a believing person, but I just don't like the church. There's been lots of, uh, and they, when they say church, they mean the Catholic church, because there's been lots of pedophilia exposed, and so people are really kind of, they're still Catholic in their family, in their tradition, but they're not practicing. So we see a big transition now, which is interesting, and you, you kind of wonder if, what the Lord's going to do. Uh, for people who are, who are believers, if from time to time you meet somebody and say, I, I want to find a new kind of church. So maybe that will be open doors for the gospel. Um, and our goal is to serve the church. We joined an existing church uh, four and a half years ago, a very, uh, especially in relation to Poland, a very healthy existing church, which for us was a big blessing, um, where the word of God was already being preached. And um, our goal is to use this church, not to use it, that sounds bad, but to be in this church and to serve in this church and for this church to be a platform for helping other churches in Poland. And so we just started a training institute called, uh, in English it would be the Bible, or the Lagos Bible Institute, and we're training uh, 40 people. God's, by God's grace, we thought there'd be maybe 10, 40 people signed up from nine different churches in Poland, and right now we're doing Bible survey with them. We're just going from Genesis to Revelation in 10 months and trying just to, to shoot through everything to give them a foundation. In the second year, we'll focus on hermeneutics, how to study your Bible, and systematic theology. In the third year, will be more practical ministry. Right now, it's, it's men and women, but after this three-year program finishes, we're talking about starting another three-year program, which would be just for men, just for pastors, uh, a diploma in expository preaching. So that's what we're doing, and we're so grateful for what the Lord has done. I also uh, became a, a pastor in the church, um, about in, in June. So I have a lot of pastoral experience. If you have any counseling questions, I have six months under my belt. Um, just, I'm just kidding. Well, I'm not kidding, actually. It's true. Um, so I, well, let's see. The, the true part is only six months. The not true part is that I have a lot of experience and that I would be a great blessing to your soul. <laughs> so um, that wasn't on my notes. But... <laughs> I will say, though, I will say this, that yes, uh, I think all the pastors in this room would agree that really none of us is sufficient for this work. And really the only thing that we can ever do to help anybody uh, is bring them to the Word of God. I'm really not that smart. And, uh, but if we can just get people and help people to understand the Scriptures, that's the hope, right? That's why this church is growing. And by the way, it's great to see so many people here. And I hear there's even more people over there now, right, too? Um, so praise God for all the people who are coming, hearing the word of God, and for what he's doing. I'm reminded of uh, Paul and Apollos, how Paul emphasized that God is the one that gave the, the growth. Some people plant seeds, some people water the seeds, but God gives the growth. I was talking to a missionary, and he said, um, he's like, we're not, even, we're not even watering the plants. We're just like accidentally spilling the water as we go. <laughs> and I like that. I thought that was well said. So we're spilling the water, and, and by, but God is faithful, isn't he? So I have a couple pictures here, just real quick. Um, this is our church, kind of give you a feel. It's a small room. Actually, it's maybe about this size, the room, with everything included. And uh, we're filling up. We need a new location soon. Um, we're preaching the word every Sunday, a lot like this church. And next, next slide. 
is, uh, if you can just press play here, this is a short video. Our church meets in a, in like a public, what's the word in English, but a public area where there's lots of shopping and stuff. And so this is cool because we can set up an evangelism table out here. People are walking back and forth, and we can uh, share, the, uh, share the gospel with people. And then one more slide here just to show you our school. You can see we set up tables for the school. These are the 40 students, and we're training them um, through the Word. So we would love your prayers for us, for open doors for the gospel, for boldness, and for blessing on our training. You can also be playing, praying for Christine's health. And by the way, thank you for all those who are praying. I've had several people come up and say, oh, Hey, we're, we've been praying for you, and um, so that's really encouraging for us. Thank you so much for praying for us and for the warm welcome. Please pray for Christine's health. It's been over five years with her having some kind of basically undiagnosed health issues where she loses her energy really quickly, and it's certainly a complicating factor in life. But if you could pray for that, that would be great. So um, there may be an opportunity later. If, if you'd like to find out more, we could get together. I'll be on the Central Coast or in the Central Coast. I don't know which preposition, but I'll be here in this area for uh, six, six weeks total. So we'll be around, and we'd love to get together with you if you have more questions. Um, but I'd like to now transition to um, the Word of God. So let's pray, and we'll go to Titus chapter 3. But first, let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your Word. We pray that you would teach us, that you would grow us, that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. We pray that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to understand the word of God. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to understand what's written here, and you would help us to really apply it in our lives. We ask that the Spirit of God would do his work in our hearts through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Eric had mentioned, all of us are on mission Mission is not just for missionaries, it's not just for pastors. Sharing the gospel is not just for mission, missionaries and pastors, it's for all of us. Because Christ told us in Matthew 28 that disciples are to be disciples who make disciples. And so if you're a disciple, you should be a disciple-making discipler. And it doesn't mean that you, that you will always have the same role as everybody else. You have different gifts and different abilities. But all of us should be using our gifts and abilities faithfully in the church, but also as God gives us opportunity, telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we understand that that is the key element for somebody to become a Christian is for them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ or the word about Christ. So if anybody's going to get saved, it's going to be through the gospel, through people hearing and understanding who Christ is, what he's done, and that he calls us to faith and repentance. But there's another element of our mission that we don't maybe talk about quite as often, and that's your personal testimony. I don't mean by that you telling somebody how you became a Christian, although that has its own value. I'm talking about your godly lifestyle. Your personal testimony is very important in your mission. And here's a question for you. Would you bring your car to a mechanic who had a car that barely drove? And would you consult a financial planner who just declared bankruptcy? Would you hire someone to clean your home if their home was a disaster? And would you choose a real estate agent who was homeless? And I think that we would all say, no, I would never do that. But if we, as Christians, say, we talk about the love of Christ, the grace of God, the power of God in the gospel to change someone's life, but then we don't show love, we're not gracious, and God's power isn't evidently changing us, are they going to listen? And it's so interesting when you read the book of Titus, 
Titus, well, Paul wrote this book to Titus. He really focuses on your Christian testimony, the way that you live your life. In fact, there's actually less in Titus mentioned about the preaching of the gospel, although it's implied, and a lot of focus on the churches on the island of Crete, which is where Titus was serving, to be a godly example to their neighbors and friends. In fact, it was a very ungodly island. If you look at Titus chapter 1, verse 10, it says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, who must, or especially those of the circumcision. In verse 12, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So here you have a, a godless culture and people getting saved and their lives are transformed and they'll shine a bright light for Christ. But it's very important that they actually, sh- they actually shine that bright light for Christ. And so Titus is here and he's not really a pastor. Okay? He does a lot of pastoral ministry, but he's not the same thing as a pastor because his job is actually to get many churches established. And you can see that in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says to him, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So he's, he's an apostolic delegate. Paul sent him to do this work in, in, uh, in Crete, on Crete, and his job is, first of all, to appoint leaders, appoint elders in the churches. And you can see that in chapter 1. And the second chapter, just going big picture here, talks about the godly lifestyle of the, of the congregations in their particular sphere in which they find themselves. It talks about older men and younger men. It talks about older women and younger men, women. It talks about Titus and his ministry as a pastor. It talks about slaves. And, and Paul is emphasizing that we, because of the grace of God and because the gospel of Jesus Christ not only saves people but also sanctifies people, all of us need to be living a godly life and showing forth the power of God through our lives. And then you get to chapter 3. And the focus is similar to chapter 2, but now it's more general. It's about the Christians and their witness, their testimony, their godly life in society. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So let's read that together. It says this, chapter 3, verse 1, book of Titus. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works which, which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for men. So I want to show you today three different reminders that will help you in your Christian witness. And I was thinking about the application and how we're coming up to Christmas, obviously. um, And a lot of you will be spending time with unbelieving family members, unbelieving friends. And I think one thing we see in this text that's implied is that sometimes it's actually really hard to spend time with unbelievers. And it's really hard to be gracious toward unbelievers. We all know that when we're driving 
Um, we all know that when we're with unbelievers at work and, um, and there can be demands and expectations that we can't fulfill because we're Christians or there can just be a general kind of dissatisfaction that unbelievers have with believers. And it can be really hard to maintain this Christian witness. And the temptation for us is to return to our old lifestyle and those habits that we have in the past and to just respond in kind to the unbelievers. But that's actually an opportunity for us when we're in those difficult moments to show forth the grace of God that sanctifies us, that's operative in our lives, and show them the love of Jesus Christ. And so Paul focuses on verses 1 and 2, a reminder, and, and we're to remember our responsibility in society. And he just lays it out clearly for us. Remind them. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. This is a reminder. And I think that's actually probably true for here, too. You guys have probably heard this before somewhere in your Christian life, if you've been walking with the Lord for some time, about what God expects of you in society. But it's a reminder. And it's actually a reminder for us that we need reminders. That sometimes you hear something, and it's not enough for us to hear it one time. We need it to, to be reminded of it so it's fresh in our memory, fresh in our heart, so that we keep going through it. It says remind them. So this is not just remind some people of the church, remind the young people of the church, remind the old people of the church, remind the women. No, this is remind them. This is everybody, which means this is for all of us, myself included. Remind them to what? To be subject to rulers, to authorities. Rulers and authorities talks about a position in the government, an official government position. It doesn't talk about the height of the position. So this is everybody from the clerk at the DMV to the president of the United States of America and everybody in between. The word to have to be subject and to be obedient. And so subjection or submission is talking about our attitude toward these people and these authorities. It's one thing, and, we, and you know this if you have kids, it's one thing to be obedient. It's another thing to have a submissive heart, right? You can tell your kid, please go clean your room, and they can complain about it, stomp their feet, clean the room. And they, they did it, but they didn't have a submissive heart, right? And same thing with us when we're in society. We have to not only have an obedience toward them, actually do what they say, but do it with a submissive and humble heart. The next thing he says is to be ready for every good work. And now in the context, it's looking outside of of just these rulers and authorities, but just in general, that you have a readiness in your life to do whatever needs to be done for somebody. It could be cleaning up a mess that you don't want to be cleaning up. It could be doing a job that nobody wants to do, but it's that you're ready for every good work. You're standing there. You're like a like a golden retriever, you know, ready to watch that ball run. You're just ready for whatever God's going to bring into your, into your life to do it, ready for every good work. The next thing he says is that you're to, to slander no one, not to speak evil about someone. And the temptation for us is for us to say that which is the worst. You're sitting at the, the dinner table on Christmas. One of your family members says something offensive, and you want to lean over to your wife or to your husband and say something unkind about them or say something unkind to them. Paul says don't do that. And even in politics, I think, uh, I'm not a politician. I'm also, I don't want my sermons to be political, but I think it's important for us to remember that we have to be careful, even in the realm of politics, especially in an election year, are the things that we're saying about candidates, are, they, are we speaking evil of these people? Are we slandering them? I mean, sure, criticize the policy, but I think we ought to be very careful to criticize the person because this says specifically here, to slander no one. And... Um, it's pretty hard to turn on the news and not see that, isn't it? To be peaceable. We're not the kind of people that get into riots. We're the kind of people that make for peace. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, you don't honk your horn and get angry. You just, it's no big deal. I mean, this is my lane, but that's okay. <laughs> I pay taxes for this lane. 
to be peaceable, to be considerate. We consider the needs of other people, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. And I think this statement here at the end is a summary. Gentleness um, is really similar to humility in this context. It's not thinking too highly of yourself. I love the example in The Hiding Place, written by Corey Ten Boom. Her sister was, uh, was hit multiple times by a, a Nazi soldier. She came downstairs. I think she had a black eye or something or bruises. And Corey said, Betsy, did he hit you? And Betsy said, yes, I feel bad for him. I think that's a, a good example of this all gentleness to all men. Not some gentleness to all men. Not all gentleness to some men. But all gentleness to all men. And so if you want to just kind of sum up your responsibility in society, you are to be a humble, gentle person. You don't respond in anger and frustration. And this is what God has for you. And imagine if we live this way before unbelievers. They might ask us, why, why do you act that way? Maybe your boss comes down hard on you for something that you didn't do, and your coworker is like, why did you not defend yourself? Why didn't you stand up for yourself? Why didn't you say something unkind back to him? He was being so unkind to you. Why don't you complain about others around you? Why do you obey those tax laws? And you can say, well, because of Christ. And you have an open door for the gospel. And I think this is what Paul is getting at in the book of Titus, is that your personal testimony can open a door for the gospel, or your personal testimony can keep a door open for the gospel. And conversely, if you don't live a godly life, you can close a door for the gospel. People won't want to hear from you. Or there could be a wide open door, and they go, well, but that guy, I'm not going to listen to that guy. And the door swings shut. And it's so important for us to remember that. But it's hard. It's really hard. In fact, some people might be thinking, <laughs> you don't know my unsaved husband or wife. You don't know my hostile neighbor. You don't know my jealous coworker. You don't know my suspicious boss. But the Lord gives us in the next part of our text, verses 3 through 7, the reasons. The reasons why... You can and must live a godly life before unbelievers. The reasons why. Here's the first reason. Verse 3. For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. Here's why. First reason. You used to be the same way. You and I, we used to be the same way. There's a, a strange phenomenon that happens as Christians that we begin to forget what we used to be like when we were unbelievers. We were just like them. We did all the same things. And so that alone ought to just work a little bit of humility to remember, how could I come down hard on this person when I used to be the same exact way? And the only reason I'm not the same way now is because of Christ. It reminds me of Christ and his Lord's Prayer telling us to forgive others or when we ask for forgiveness, as we've been forgiven, and then he says, if you don't forgive others, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. There ought to be an attitude of forgiveness and humility because we've been forgiven so much. So what does he say exactly? He says that we were foolish. And he says ourselves. He doesn't say yourselves. So Paul lumps himself into the same category. This is everyone before Christ. If you're in this room and you're not in Christ, this is you right now. We were all once foolish. We didn't understand the truth. We didn't understand the gospel. We didn't understand the Bible. We didn't understand spiritual truth. And it reminds me of when you do evangelism that very often people have strong convictions and they have no idea what they're talking about, biblically speaking. 
disobedient. Not only did we have a foolish heart, that foolish heart led to disobedient actions. <coughs> Deceived. And we all thought we were doing okay. I remember hearing a story of a person who killed two people, and he said, well, I'm a good person. I just had two bad days. And there's this deception that we think that we're good. And if you go out, if you have God opens the door tonight while you're singing Christmas carols, and you ask somebody, do you think you're a good person? 90% they're going to say, I, I, I think I'm a good person. Because they compare themselves with others. And if they're actually pretty bad in society, they just find somebody worse to compare themselves with because it's a deception. It's a spiritual blindness. That's why we preach the law. We preach the requirements of God to show them not how to be saved, but to show them their need for salvation. And it leads them to Christ. It's like, a, it's like an entrance onto the freeway. You're not on the freeway of salvation, but you've got to get through that, that entrance onto it. And that's what the law does. It leads you to the freeway. It leads you to Christ because you see your need and you cry out, what must I do to be saved? Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. This refers to our former enslavement to sin. Notice that it's various lusts and pleasures. It's not as if people just have one sin, their one pet sin. This is various. And these are sinful desires and sinful pleasures that we indulged in before Christ. Spending our life in malice and envy. And so now the focus changes from from merely sins vertically against God, but also we had horizontal sins against other people. Um, We wanted bad for people. That's malice. And we didn't want them to experience good. That's envy. We're spending our days that way, spending our life that way. Despicable. It's no surprise that others would hate us, despicable, if we had such wicked desires against them. And then you can see it's a downward spiral, hating one another. So we return the hatred with hatred. And that's Paul's description or to put it maybe even better, that's God's description of mankind before Christ. Um, that's not popular. That's not what people want to hear. But it's what people desperately need to hear. Because our sin is so great before a holy God. And we remember that we didn't just sin against another man who's a sinner. David said, against you and you only I have sinned, right? In Psalm 51, our sin is ultimately against a God but not just any God, against the God who is holy, 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 totally set apart from us in every way. And that was all of us before Christ. Not all of us committed all these sins to the same degree, but we all had sinful hearts that were guilty of these sins. And so you can see that from a human perspective, there was zero hope, no hope. We didn't understand well. We were foolish and deceived. We didn't desire well. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. And we didn't live well. We were disobedient, spending our life in malice, envy, despicable, hating one another. We didn't understand well. We didn't desire well. We didn't live well. And this is all of mankind apart from Christ. And you couldn't have helped yourself. There's just no way. What would you have done? Every human is in this plight, so no mere man could help us. Nobody else could have helped us either. They're all in the same boat as we are. Only the Lord could help us. And we see God's wonderful intervention beginning in verse 4. So if we used to be in this same boat with all the other unbelievers, we should be compassionate toward them. So remember who you were before Christ. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go back and rehearse all the sins that you've committed before Christ. Obviously, we do look forward to what's ahead, like Paul tells us in Philippians. But generally, it's good for us from time to time just to remember, man, look at what the Lord has done with me. Just imagine where I would have been if God didn't save me 10 years ago or whatever it is for you. Imagine if I had just stayed on that path. 
It's, it's such an encouragement to think that God is in the business of, of saving sinners. It ought to also give us some encouragement, too, when we see these unbelievers. Not only should it work humility in us, it also should work a little bit of hope in us, too. Like, you know what? God saved me. He could save him, too. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. And you see, this guy had an evangelistic zeal that just pr- to press forward. So here's the second reason. You should be kind. You should show all gentleness to all men because God saved us. Verses 4 through 7, because God saved us. And first I want to show you the timing of that, the when. Okay? And that's because it says, but when. <laughs> but when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared. So kindness and affection. Kindness is the quality of being helpful. In Romans eleven twenty two, we have the same word, and it's paired with severity. So that helps, that helps us understand what Paul is getting at here. It's the opposite of being severe. So God didn't show us a severe punishment for our sin. He showed us kindness instead. It's like Psalm 103.10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, and he has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. Affection. This is the word uh, philanthropia, or where we get the word philanthropy, which means love for man. And we see the same word in Acts chapter 28, verse 2, when the natives, after Paul's shipwreck, showed us extraordinary affection. And they lit a fire for him, if you remember, and they took care of them when they had just had that shipwreck. And the focus here is on God's tenderness and compassion toward man. Next says, God, our Savior. And this is actually a theme in the book of Titus. You can see that um, in many verses, that God is our Savior, that Christ is our Savior. And it's a great hope for us that, that God is really, a, he came to save. He has a saving heart. Jesus said that he came to seek and to save that which is lost and appeared. Okay, this is a key word here, appeared. For, uh, verse 4, for when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared. Now, it's interesting in English, um, we could say he appeared. It's the same thing. And we could say they appeared. So I, you may not be much of a grammar person, but when you say he appeared, appeared is singular. When you say they appeared, appeared is plural. But in English, it's spelled the same way and it sounds the same way. But in Greek, it's not that way. You can actually see if a word is singular or if a word is plural. And here, surprisingly, it's singular. You'd think it'd be plural because it's when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared. But the verb appeared is actually singular, which unites those two ideas, the kindness and affection of God. So why do you think that Paul did that? Well, here's why I think he did that, because the word appeared everywhere in the New Testament refers to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can even see that in chapter 2, verse 11 of the same book. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And you can see it a little bit later in verse 13, where it obviously is referring to Christ, but this time to his second coming, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I think what Paul is doing here is reminding us that the, 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 the timing of our salvation is linked to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, of course, is what we celebrate, particularly at this time of the year. And by the way, I loved singing those Christmas hymns. I haven't got to do that in years, but the church singing loud Christmas hymns in English, oh, man, that was awesome. But uh, I was really so encouraging. But, okay, so I did pick a Christmas sermon for you, kind of incidentally, but I did. So because it's the, when, the, when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared. 
This is talking about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't think only that. I think also the perspective is broader, referring to his life and his death and his resurrection. So in some sense, the timing of your salvation is when Christ came onto the scene as a savior to save you from your sins. But on the other hand, there's a little more here too, isn't there? Because this is such a personal passage. And he's talking about who we used to be. And then at this moment, when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, I think Paul is also reminding them to, to remember when God saved you personally. What was, when was it for you? What were the circumstances? And I'm not saying that you have to know exactly that moment that you came to Christ. The, the scripture doesn't teach that. You know you're a Christian not by looking back at what you did or a decision you made or a prayer that you prayed, but looking at your life right now. Do you bear fruit right now? That's how you know if you're a Christian. But it's still good for us to remember that, that God did dramatically intervene in our lives. And we would have just gone straight to hell if it weren't for the Lord. He chose us. And that's the only reason that we're saved. When the kindness and affection of God, our Savior, appeared. How was it for you? Was it through a sermon that you heard on the radio? Was it through a gospel tract that somebody gave you? Was it because you grew up in the church? Was it because a friend at school invited you to come to youth group? Was it through a Bible study? Was it through the prayers of a striving mother? Was it through the prayers of a Bible study? I don't know how it was for you, but it's important for us to remember that God also personally intervened in our lives and saved us, but on the basis of what? On the basis of the birth, the life, the death, resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when God saved us. So why is God reminding us of this? So that we will show similar kindness to the lost. If God did that for us, can't we show humility and kindness and gentleness even to a boss that's unreasonable, or to family members that are belligerent. Can't we do that? I heard a remarkable story. I like World War II history. I'm not an expert, of course, uh, but I sometimes go on YouTube and I find these interviews they have with old vets. And a lot of these guys are dead now, but they took videos before they died. And they just tell their story, and I love listening to those. My favorite one, though, was from a guy named Ted Estridge. And he must have been in his 90s when they recorded this. He was in, in hospice. I think he died in 2019. And he fought in the Pacific. Um, he fought in the Battle of Okinawa, which was a very bloody battle. He saw action. It was terrible. And here's what he said in the interview. He said, in November 1958, the Lord called me in the ministry. He called me to go back to Okinawa as a missionary. Now, I'll tell you, I hated Okinawa. I hated the Japanese people at the time until the Lord saved me. And he gave me a love for the Japanese people and Okinawans. I took my family, and we spent 15 years on Okinawa as missionaries. And that's it. The salvation that God works in our lives also produces love for people that formerly for us were unlovable before Christ. And next we see the how. So that was the when. Now we see the how. Verse 5. He saved us not by works which we did in righteousness. So the first thing about God saving us, that's the main idea here, is he tells us how it didn't happen. It's not by works done in righteousness. Paul already told us who we are. We're verse 3, remember? That's who we were before Christ. We didn't have these good works to bring before God. Um, And somebody might say, well, wait a minute. I mean, don't unbelievers at least do some good works? Don't they do something that's good? Can't they make a meal for somebody who's sick? Can't they give money to charity? And of course, they can do that. And of course, they do that. And from a human perspective, those are 
not objectively wrong things. But here's what I will say. Ephesians chapter 2 shows us that all of mankind is dead in their trespasses and sins, and therefore they cannot offer anything to God that is truly pleasing in his sight because he is holy and mankind is not holy. So if anybody ever tries to give good works and say, see, I'm actually pretty good. Well, first of all, they're not because they know that they have sin. And we know from James chapter 2 that if you break one of the commandments, you're guilty of the whole thing, right? So they already are, it's already impossible for them. It's not, it's, it's not as if there's going to be a scale where, where God's going to weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds. That's, of course, not biblical. But also those very good works that they would rely on don't do anything to help anybody before God because those good deeds would have to be totally perfect. And, not, and no sinful person enslaved to their sin, dead in their sins, would be able to offer something perfect to a holy God. It reminds me of when I was working at a restaurant a long time ago in the Santa Clarita area, and I was a busser, and I did everything, man, except for making the food and, and I guess, taking the orders. We did pretty much everything else. Uh, we made lemonade, and we stocked silverware and everything. I remember, and we also set the tables, and I remember I was setting the tables one day, and I was putting napkins on the table, and I saw some bright red cake frosting on the tables, and I touched them, so I'm, you know, wiping off my hands, thinking that I'd cleared some cake, and I somehow got the frosting on there. And it kept happening. And I realized it wasn't cake frosting. It said I had nicked my finger or something, and I was getting blood on the napkins, which, by the way, is a really bad idea when you're uh, working as a busser. And, and here's the point, though. It was just a little bit of blood. It, was, it would be totally unacceptable to leave those on the table for the customers, right? And it's the same thing with any good works. Any stain of sin makes the whole thing totally unacceptable before a holy God. And so Paul is emphasizing here We weren't saved by our good works. I mean, as if it wasn't obvious, he just emphasizes it again. Not by works which we did in righteousness. But why? But according to his mercy. Why? You know why you're saved? Because God looked at you and he felt bad for you. That's why you're saved. He felt bad for us. He had compassion on us. He pitied us. That's why we're saved. Not because he thought, well, you know, John Doe, He's pretty good, and I don't have to do quite as much forgiving for him, so I'll save him. No, all of us were dead in our sins. It's always a miracle when anybody comes to Christ. In fact, sometimes it's <laughs> somebody made this point, point. I think it was an interesting point, that it's, it's, it's almost not more of a miracle, but equally a miracle when somebody who's moral comes to Christ because God had to convict them of their sin when they felt sure that they were righteous before God. So we are just debtors of grace, aren't we? debtors of grace. God saved us because he felt bad for us. He saved us not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, and this is so cool, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Paul is linking these two things together, giving us two aspects of our new birth. Washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit. So many people say, washing of regeneration means baptism. It doesn't mean baptism. Because it doesn't say washing of baptism, it says washing of regeneration. And we know that baptism doesn't save anybody. You can't get dunked in water and have all your sins washed away. You have to be spiritually cleansed. This is kind of like getting a bath, but not a bath on the outside, a bath on the inside. And just as an illustration, imagine a child opens up the the garbage thing, climbs up a little ladder, jumps in, and is just a filthy mess. And mom, ah, screams, comes, gets the baby, you know, and takes him to the bath. Ten minutes later, you would never know that that baby or that child was so disgusting and filthy because the water washed it all away. And all that dirty water went down the drain, and you'll never, hopefully, never see it again, right? 
And that's kind of what it's like when you become a Christian. You get all your sins washed away, and you'll never see them again. Never. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? You'll never see them again. They're washed. They're washed away. You're cleansed. You don't have to live in guilt about those things in the past. God forgave you of it. And he did it justly by sending his son to die on your behalf. So you don't have to feel guilty. You just have to feel grateful. You just have to feel grateful. And renewing by the Holy Spirit. This is that second aspect of our new birth, that the Spirit of God also gave us a brand new life. And by the way, this is important to mention when you evangelize. We also talk about how God changes us, okay? You you always want to get people to understand we're not saved by good works, but good works are the necessary fruit of someone who has been truly saved. You've probably heard this before. Good works are not the root of your salvation. They're the fruit of your salvation. And that's because God the Holy Spirit gives you a brand new life at the moment of your conversion. And now what? You have new passions, new desires. There's been a clean break with your old life of sin. No, not perfectly. Please don't think that I'm saying you'll live a perfect life. We all struggle with sin. We all have to confess our sins. We all turn away from our sins. But now here's the difference. We hate it. We used to love it, but now we hate it. We don't want those in our lives anymore because we're new people, and God gave us a new life to live for him. And what Paul is emphasizing here is, hey, you can live a kind and gracious life toward unbelievers because you have a new heart. You have a heart that beats for Christ now. You don't have to live in the old ways of the flesh like you used to live. In fact, you can't. You're not allowed to even, but that's okay. You don't, shouldn't even want to. You can just live for Christ and have so much joy in your life. We're not the same. 2 Corinthians 5.17, amazing verse, good one to have on uh, uh, memorized, 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. Next it's written here, verse 6 whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And he, I probably should have mentioned this earlier, he is referring to the Father. The main uh, subject of the verb, he saved us, is referring to God the Father. And we know that because we see the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Son and other places. So that means that this is talking about the Father pouring out the Spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, And what Paul is emphasizing here is it's not like the Spirit of God worked in your life once during conversion and then left you. It's that the Spirit of God continues to work in your life because he indwells you. He lives inside of you. And so now you have the Spirit of God always helping you in your life. Someone said the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual life, sustains our spiritual life, empowers our spiritual life, and guarantees that our spiritual life will become eternal life because he is the the seal or guarantee of eternal life. So if the Spirit of God indwells us, how could a godly life be optional? That's one of the great lies that we've heard is that, you know, there's somebody becomes a Christian and then it's kind of an option for them if they want to live for Christ. And they're kind of the committed Christians. And you have the carnal Christians who, who aren't really living for Christ, but they're still saved because they, they believed on, on Christ, but they didn't really repent. Well, the Bible doesn't make that distinction. The Bible talks about people who have been born again and who have a new life and a new heart and new desires to live for Christ. And oh yeah, they actually live it out. Again, not perfectly, but they grow. And that's the evidence of true salvation is that you bear fruit. If you don't have fruit, then you don't have salvation. And 
I mean, Paul said it in Titus 1.16 about the false teachers. They profess to know God, but by their works they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. So it also reminds me of 1 John. You can say you have no sin. You can say that you're a Christian, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are one. You can say anything. I could say that I have, uh, that I have ears big enough to fly with them like wings, but it's not true. You know, it's, it, it's the truth is whether or not you actually bear fruit that's what shows if you're really a Christian or not. If you don't see that clean break with sin, maybe the Lord has you here today to hear the gospel message because he has a saving heart and because he wants to forgive you of your sins and he brought you to church to hear the gospel so that you'll be saved. So don't leave and think, okay, I just got to be a better person so God will forgive me. No, 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 that's not how it works. It's that Christ does everything for you and you just come to him. That's it. He does it all. And you come to him in faith and repentance. You say, I don't want this life of sin. I want Christ. Because I realize that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose again from the dead, that his blood will cover anyone, and I want that gift. And you know what? If that's actually in your heart, you know why that's in your heart? It's because God put it in your heart. I mean, this, this is God's work from the beginning to the end. He chose us. So if you, if you want that, then praise God. Then just go. Just go because that's the Lord calling you. You wouldn't come otherwise. Men didn't come to the light. They loved the darkness rather than the light. That was a very loose paraphrase of John 3.19. Maybe I should just read it <laughs> instead. Those moments when you realize, ah, I've got to know the Bible better. John 3.19, I hope. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So if you want to come to the light, that shows you that God is doing something in your heart. And you should come. When? Right now. In your pew. You just come to the Lord. You just come to him in faith and repentance. It's not a formula. It's not, it's not like you have to pray this prayer precisely with all these right words and say amen with the right intonation. That's not how it works. He's looking at your heart. You come to him and you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ. And we would rejoice with you if, uh, if you came to the Lord. Speaking of the Lord, it says next, through Jesus Christ our Savior. Through Jesus Christ our Savior. I think what Paul is emphasizing is that the reason that the Spirit of God can even indwell our lives is because of what Christ has done for us. Now we've been cleansed, we've been sanctified, we're holy, and, we're, and, and the Spirit of God can take up residence within us because of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he took the wrath of God for us when he hung on the cross, and he rose again from the dead, showing that the price has been paid in full. Remember, why is the Lord telling us this? so that you'll obey the commands in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, that you'll be this godly light in society because of everything that God has done for you and because the Spirit of God is in you. It was all at God's expense. And so also, it may be a personal expense for you to love unbelievers. But then when you do that, you're following in the footsteps of your Savior. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, so here we have a, a real um, summary statement about everything that just came before. We're justified, not by works, but by grace. Justified is that we're declared righteous before God. The gavel comes down. You think the verdict's going to be guilty because of your sins. It comes down as not guilty because of what Christ has done. Because his righteousness is credited to us and our sin was credited to him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God and him were justified by grace, only by grace, not by works. And then he says this, 
in verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So it's like, okay, that would have been enough just to remember everything that Christ has done for us. But then he, then he reminds us of our future hope as well. So we saw our past in verse 3, who we were. We see our present in our salvation that God has worked in our lives. And then we see the future of our salvation at the end of verse 7, that we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, which means that we are looking forward to the blessings of eternal life. So God not only did all that for us right now, he also has made these promises for the future. So, I mean, if, if he's promised us eternity with him and eternity in new glorified bodies and enjoying the the rule of Jesus Christ for the a thousand years before he turns the kingdom over to the Father and there's going to be no more tears, no more pain, no more mourning. I mean, can't we, can't we then kind of swallow the tough pill and show love to these unbelievers that are so difficult to love so that we can preach this gospel to them? Can't you do that when you're at dinner on the 24th or whatever and it's hard? Can't you do that at work? Can't you do that with a wayward child who has pushed you aside? I can't. Can't, you, can't we show the love of Christ to them the way that God has shown the love to us? Let me just read you a couple verses about our future hope. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Revelation 21, 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And then Revelation 22, 3 through 5. And there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his slaves will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. We have a great hope for eternity. Last thing, just by way of closing, I want to give you one more reminder, and that's remember the reward. We've already mentioned this a few times, but just notice how Paul brings this this section to a close in verse 8. I won't have time to go through all the details, but he says this is a trustworthy saying, meaning the things that he just said, most likely verses 4 through 7 he's talking about. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently to Titus. No, it's not suggestions, Titus. No, just... Hey, everybody, I thought we'd get together. I just want to suggest that you live a godly life. No, it's Titus, you tell him. This is what you've got to do. It's not an option for us, okay? So don't come away and think, well, Kyle had some good points, but I don't know. <sighs> Maybe next year. No, this is like, we've got to do this. This is what God wants for us. Speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. This word intention is talking about giving sustained thought to it. And here's the thing. When you walk away, you've got to think. Not just, not just reactively, okay, what can I, you know, it should be reactive in some ways. When some, something happens, you should show love and show gentleness to people when something happens. But also proactively thinking about, how can I do this? How can I actually make this happen? How can I plan this out? By God's grace, if he, if he blesses my plans, how can I actually get into the position to show good works in my life, and particularly in this context, toward unbelievers? And he says this, these things are good and profitable for men. And in the context, men is referring to unbelievers. So it's good and profitable for them. It's good, I think, in the sense of us being salt in society. We help preserve society to not go off the rails any more than it already is. We try to slow things down by God's grace. But it's also profitable 
in the sense that these are the things that help your gospel witness that will help in leading somebody to Christ. Now, I'm not saying that you lead somebody to Christ through your actions. You don't. You lead somebody to Christ through your words. They have to know the gospel. But you're, like we're saying, it's like the one-two punch. You've got the words about Christ, and you've got your lifestyle that backs that up. And those are two powerful things in, that God will use in your life if you're faithful to put these into practice. It's good, and it's profitable for men. I just want to close with what, oh, I think it's over here, um, with what Christ told us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, and then we'll close in prayer. Jesus said this. He said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this precious passage in the scripture. We thank you so much for this the practical nature of it, how you want not only for us to speak about Jesus Christ, but also for us to model a life that's been changed by Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to really apply this into our lives. Lord, when we're at Costco or at a grocery store and someone is so unkind to us or when somebody cuts us off in traffic, but not only those reactive things, but also proactively, how can we, how can we reach our neighbors for Christ? What can we do to try to lead people you know, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ? How can we show them who Christ is? Would you help us, Lord, to consider others? Would you bless us? Would you strengthen this church? Thank you for what you're doing here at Brian Bible Church, and we pray that you continue to grow this church spiritually and numerically. We pray that, that it would be a great lighthouse on the Central Coast. We pray that if anybody is here, either in the sanctuary or in the overflow, or even somebody who may listen to the recording of this sermon in the future, that, if, that you would touch their hearts if they're not yet saved, that they would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would realize how foolish it would be to hold on to their sin and to perish for eternity when you offer free salvation to anyone who will come to you. We pray that anybody who's in that boat right now, that they would come to you. That you would work out all those details and um, we just know that you're the God who saves. You're the God who draws. And so we pray that you do that very thing. We thank you again and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.